Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. All right, welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. For ConnectingVets.com, I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs. Now today we're going to talk with a Marine Corps veteran who is one of the biggest voices of 2021. Back in August, then-Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller made a series of videos demanding that senior military leaders in the Marine Corps and going all the way up to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the President take full and total responsibility for the failure in Afghanistan. I want to say this very strongly. I have been fighting for 17 years. I am willing to throw it all away to say to my senior leaders, I demand accountability. Specifically, the failed exit strategy that was so bad that at one point we asked the Taliban to guard the perimeter and a suicide bomber killed Marines and a Navy corpsman. Did any of you throw your rank on the table and say, hey, it's a bad idea to evacuate Bagram Airfield, the strategic air barriers, before we evacuate everyone? Did anyone do that? Today, we'll hear why Stu Scheller was willing to release statements that ultimately got him relieved of command, court-martialed, and discharged from the Marine Corps that he served. Today, we'll hear why and what's next. And with that, let's welcome Marine Corps combat veteran, former lieutenant colonel, and political activist now, Stuart Scheller. How are you, sir? Thanks, Phil. Yeah, that's a mouthful. I'm not really sure what you'd call me. Former Lieutenant Colonel Scheller works, and I appreciate you having me on. When I first saw the videos come out on LinkedIn and I saw the Facebook videos, which we're going to dive into, and I saw your questions to leadership about our withdrawal from Afghanistan, I didn't know about your relationship with the 1-8 Marines. I didn't know anything about your history. I see a officer in basically schoolhouse, you know, thinking, hmm, okay, this guy's mad, but I mean, what, you know, what's his deal? Before we get into the video, why you made it, why you ended up sacrificing not only a 17-year career, but uh, willing to undergo court-martial time in the brig. I want to start with a little bit about Stu Scheller. Bio, background, you were a college guy, you joined the Corps. Bring me back into those days. Why why the Corps? So I just was a normal college student, no military affiliation through college. And then I got out or graduated college and I was working as an accountant and did not enjoy it. It was not fulfilling. It was not the $120,000 out of college job that you thought you were going to get when you get a college degree, right? So I think I was just starting to learn what the world was like. And I realized where I was, I needed something different. I didn't know what it was. 
right then there was a war going on and I felt compelled to serve. I've always been on teams. I was a college soccer player. I've always liked being a leader amongst groups and I wanted a challenge. So it just, a lot of things were going on in my life that I was looking for change. I wanted to be a part of something bigger and it it made sense. Getting to those early days of joining the Corps, I loved the story about officer candidate school and you getting there and (laughs) sort of kind of an analogy that will play out through the rest of your life. But like day one, week one, Stuart Scheller, probably not the most squared away guy. Share with me a little bit about everybody else used Ziplocs except you and (laughs) that first moment when you realized, man, what did I get into? Yeah. I mean, the story, the summary is I did not know what was about to happen. I showed up to officer candidate school thinking it was going to be grown man rules. Here's the challenge, complete the challenge, or you didn't make the team. Similar to all the sports teams I'd tried out for my whole life. And it turns out it's just this big screaming hazing fest that you would have thought that I would have been prepared for. Looking back, it's kind of silly that I wasn't, but I wasn't. And in the pickup where all the drill instructors like run through the auditorium screaming, telling you to get outside and you run outside with the like four bags of just crap that you've gotten at the PX. You get on what we call the parade deck, a big asphalt parking lot. And then they have you dump all your stuff. And then they just tell you to pick it up and put it back in your bags. And I realized that all the other candidates had put their stuff in Ziploc bags. So all their pens and razors and things didn't go flying. And of course I didn't do that. And so I was the last one to pick up all my stuff and I just, I was lost. Identified as lost right at the beginning. <laughs> I liked how you put that again in the Jocko podcast. You're like, I'm staring at nothing but shins. Everyone's yeah, I was. Yelling. I had to fight through shins literally to get the rest of my stuff. There's like four people around me just screaming like, okay, we're going to be last. Okay. We're going to be last. You know? And then, yeah, I was last and there was just no hiding it. <laughs> Which is, you know, very cool in a way because it taught you something there. And I think it, I, when I heard that, I was like, okay, that's cool. I kind of identify with this guy. This guy must identify with me because, you know, I, I went to boot probably the same way. And on the enlisted ranks, you don't think about your bosses. You don't think about your officers fumbling through like lost puppies. But when yeah. we, when we join, you know, when we step and we raise our hand and we get to boot or you get to OCS, man, it is welcome. This is your birthday. It's a new you. That's right. <laughs> I liked how you said that you'd planned on, you were always going to get out. You were going to be, you were going to accept your commission. You were going to serve, you were going to do something and then, you know, do your time and get in and get out, which is an honorable, noble thing to do. A lot of officers do it that way. As we're about ready to hear it, it never got out. <laughs> you just kept going. You start a relationship with uh, the one eight Marines and a unit that we'll hear more and more about throughout this interview. The part I want you to share that really took me was how you noticed they were not all in uniform. And that was a moment that hit you in the heart when you realized what you were dealing with when you first greeted your platoon. You got to keep in mind from the story we just told OCS where I was lost. And I was, I was pretty lost going through all the training. But the Marine Corps does a really good job of preparing you. And after 11 months, I felt prepared and I was hungry and I was ready to go. Like you want second lieutenants. You want a second lieutenant where you have to pull the reins back. You know, they're just go, go, go. That's why you have a company commander that can kind of pull the reins and has a little bit more wisdom. You got a platoon sergeant also that has a little bit more wisdom. So you got to, when you understand that context, here I am, a second lieutenant, just gets to my unit. We got six months until deployment. We're going to Iraq. This was the unit that had just gotten back from Fallujah. And so, you know, you would never admit it, but you're nervous because you're talking to your platoon for the first time. There are a bunch of war veterans. You have confidence in yourself, but you you still want them to to respect you. And, and so, you know, what do you say? I, you, hey, all you can really say is, Hey, I'm the Lieutenant. Um, this is what I stand for. I look, I look forward to working with you. Here's the training continuum. And, you know, that's pretty much the speech, but when I gave it, you know, you're sizing up your guys as they're sizing up you that half of them were in like sweats, which, you know, coming through the schoolhouse, you're just drilled with discipline, uniform, all that stuff. So I grabbed my platoon Sergeant after the fact, and was kind of giving them a hard time. I was like, hey, Staff Sergeant, why is half the platoon, when they're meeting their platoon commander for the first time, in sweats? Like, that's unacceptable. And he just looked at me like deadpan and was like, sir, they just got back from Fallujah. 
uh, five months ago, and most of them still have shrapnel in their bodies and have doctor's notes to wear sweats because the uniform, you know, rubs on the shrapnel that's still in their bodies. And that was the moment where I just, I felt like an ass because I didn't, one, even understand or appreciate who was standing in front of me and the fact that I was giving my platoon sergeant a hard time about a uniform when, you know, that was probably the first, furthest thing from what I needed to be saying and just the gravity of the situation. So it was, it was deep for me. Very cool to hear you sense that, to realize that and that little bit of a wake up call and realize the gravity of what it was like to be a member of the one eight. Mm. Yeah, actually, actually you, you asked why I joined when I was working as an accountant, I was literally watching the Marines in Fallujah. I had no idea who the units were, but one eight was the center of that push. So it was just kind of serendipitous that that's the unit I ended up with a year later. They'll play a bigger part in your story as we unfold. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, first deployment. Uh, was that the one to Ramadi or was that the move uh, you uh, went on? So we, we trained for Iraq the whole time, but we ended up as we got, we were on a mu. So you get on ships and as we got close, Israel and Lebanon got into a conflict. This was in 06. And so they used my unit to evacuate American citizens in Lebanon to Cyprus. And once we did that, we kind of just were in a holding pattern off of Beirut for the next two months. And then we ended up flying over to Ramadi seven months later. Deployed with what's called a Marine Expeditionary Unit, it was a shipboard deployment where they load up Marines and weapons and gear and they head out to sea ready to fight. And as any Marine will tell you, they get really, really bored. Yes, it is very much Groundhog Day in terms of you wake up, you eat your three meals, you work out and you try and do some like training with your platoon that is really just a check in the box to make it look like you're engaging them. And that's that's every day. My brother was in the Navy, too, and said that they had Marines on his ship for a while. And he said that they used to, for, for entertainment, they would dump the garbage in the middle. of the, <laughs> This is in the 80s, but they would, like, dump garbage. And the Marines would, like, have their rifles. And they would just try to shoot. They, they would want them to throw anything they could off the ship to see if they could shoot it. <laughs> yeah, we actually, um, not just garbage, but we took the wooden pallets that made boxes. And we threw them off the back, and they floated. And then we tell the machine gunners, sink the box. And so it was a very clear indicator of, can you shoot? Because the box will sink if you shoot it. And so, yeah, we, we used a technique of that. <laughs> Fun stuff. Marines at sea. Marines eventually do go to land, and they eventually do the hard work of war. Um, what I was taken with in your description of Ramadi was, I think it was that first thing you noted that was like, young officer, was it young first lieutenant, young second lieutenant, Scheller? I had just been promoted to first lieutenant, so we're talking like yeah. months, and I was now a company XO. So you got four platoon commanders. So in a normal infantry company, there's three line platoons and a weapons platoon. But when we went to Ramadi, we actually reconstructed it so it was just four line platoons. And mm -hmm. so we had four platoons and a company XO and a company commander, and so I was the company XO. Yeah, ma'am. Uh, what, what I was taken with is here you are nonetheless a young officer and you're sitting here watching some things play out through our strategy and you're kind of going, this just doesn't feel right. Uh, explain to me kind of what it was like in your feelings on the money situation. I recall from your interview, uh, you know, we, as part of our protocol, were, were giving money to Iraqi tribes and Iraqi groups? Yeah, some of the missions that we did there were ridiculous. I mean, we did, I'll get to the money here in a second, but just to give a little bit more context, like we would go out on patrol and like clean up trash in Ramadi, which I was just like, I don't understand why we're doing this. We would, um, I, I mentioned a little bit in the Jocko podcast, like the name of the game was just to get patrols out there, but they really couldn't link like other than presence, what we were supposed to be doing. Now we sometimes would do different things. Like we would find stuff, but it didn't seem like that it was tied to a bigger picture. And so like, if you were to ask them, they would say, well, we need a sustainable democratic government. And by you having presence, it prevents the insurgents, therefore gives the government time to build. And it's like, okay, like, I guess I, I can follow that logic, but at the same time, 
I'm not, you know, like there's, there's so many holes I could poke into it when you actually are on the ground watching what the Marines are doing, like that logic briefs well, but in reality, like the 13 Marines moving in the middle of nowhere, knocking on somebody's door. I'm just like, I, I don't know. So there was that. And then yes, the biggest point of contention was the money. So the way it works is in a company battle space, at least in this time, they had a company commander that would write the contracts and then the company XO would be the pay agent. So they, that was their separation of authority. So my company commander would go out and write contracts and then I would go to Ramadi and get a backpack full of cash and then walk around and hand out the cash. And in our AO, there was like one guy that was like a mafia guy. And my company commander received pressure from the battalion commander because it was just PowerPoint slideology. How many contracts are you writing? So same thing, like, you got to have presence. You got to have presence all the time. That's how we're evaluated is our presence. And it's like, you got to write contracts. You have to write contracts. That's how we're evaluated is the quantity of our contracts. And there was only like one guy with the capability to actually do anything in RAO. So all the money went to this guy when quite honestly, I don't, I think it was, it was actually counterproductive because this guy was like a mafia guy and, and he was not building stability. If anything, he was taken away from it. But my company commander was evaluated by his battalion commander who just looked at quantity of contracts written. And so that was what we were doing. Like, you know, my boss gets promoted by the assessment of his boss. And that's where, that's the only thing that matters to him. Right. So talking about these bigger picture items are irrelevant when you're the captain who is not even close to 20 years and he needs a good fitness report. So he's going to do what his boss thinks, which is just write contracts. And so first Lieutenant Scheller was just handing out cash and I don't think it was effective at all. And so that was, I, I walked away from Ramadi kind of scratching my head, like picking up trash, presents without tied to anything and just handing out money like, eh. and you know, I had, I did, my best friend was blown up. Like we lost people. It was, and I just, I wasn't sure about the, the strategic approach. Right on. Again, that speaks to the Obama era of the global war on terrorism and our engagement in Iraq there. Um, did he, as a young officer, were you well, ever? Hold on, hold on. That was actually, so 07 was still George Bush. Um, and George Bush is the one that originally stated in his, like, his, his strategy was to build a democracy in, in Iraq. Like, you can go back in 2002, and that's what he stated. And even when the Iraq Council came out and said that he should draw down, he went the other way and had a surge. And I will say on the tactical level, the surge was effective. But the problem is not the tactical level. The problem is the link between the tactical and the operational and strategic level. And so, yes, if you flood the zone with tactical people, i.e. the, the junior military member, they're going to rise to the occasion. They always win their battles. But the problem is his lofty goal of democracy in Iraq um, and, and simultaneously outing the entire Sunni government and not bringing them into the fold of the new government, which was probably the biggest blunder that any administration made in all of our wars, which just led to the insurgency. Uh, and yeah, to your point, Obama didn't do any better. So I, I, like we had a string of presidents that in terms of foreign policy, it just seemed to be very naive. Yeah. And uh, thank you for catching that for me, because what I wanted to paint here is that it goes through multiple administrations and that the disconnect is at a higher level, which we're going to get to when we finally get to the end part of this chat where we talk about these videos. Um, Ramadi, the cash, you were a young officer. Um, did you at the time, because you were so new, feel like, well, this is not my place to push back. This is not my place to say uh, you know, major, uh, a, a colonel. I think the guy we're dealing with is just straight shady. And this is like, we're, we're not achieving anything here. Was it your newness that maybe kept you from saying that? Or did you in fact, you know, over a quiet moment, you know, say that to the guys. Jocko kind of alluded to it in his podcast as well, saying, it seems like you just kind of at one point started getting more vocal and I've reflected on it. I, so there's two aspects to the Ramadi one in particular. One, you know, I described how lost I was through the training pipeline. I think my confidence in understanding the bigger picture came once I really started hitting my groove as an officer. And so as a young first Lieutenant, I still very felt like I just didn't know what I didn't know. And even though I was identifying some of these things, I just felt like other people had a much better grasp and I probably just didn't understand. 
And so looking at these guys that have been doing this for their whole career, I just, again, I assumed I didn't know. And so the other part of it was my battalion commander on that deployment was just an ass. There's no other way to say it. I mean, he would threaten to fire people. He fired multiple people. He was a tyrant. No one could make a decision without talking to him. No one could get into a gunfight without him jumping on the radio and talking people through it. I mean, he was the definition of a, of a tyrant leader. And so there wasn't a lot of dissent when engaging him. Again, some of the missions may just scratch your head. And I want you to tell me a little bit about the 40 vehicle convoy to go resupply 40 guys. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is in Afghanistan, when you're a battalion and you're put in such a distributed space, you're going to do whatever you can with the assets you have to make sure your guys get resupplied. But it, it did leave you scratching your head. If you go back and listen to the Jocko podcast, you'll hear how I was with 40 vehicles, just like you alluded to and went out to a platoon outpost, but it was not just like 40 of the similar vehicle. I mean, it's like a pickup team of like six different elements all thrown together because you got to have an Afghan presence. You got to have a counter ID presence. You got to have an infantry presence. You got to have the logistical presence, you know, so on and so forth. And it, it just grows. So I think like probably in the original conception, you're like, okay, it'll just be, 15 to 20 vehicles. And then you have all these other things that you think you need. And by the end of it, you're just looking at this thing like this is a goat rope. We had the same conversation on the patrol. We're like, there's 40 of a 40 vehicles going to respite 40 men. So it wasn't like it was lost on us, but it's one of those things where you're just like, all right, well, let's go. This is what we're doing. The, the other thing that I really just had a hard time with is do do you want to win this war? And Afghanistan was not the same in Iraq. I can't go back and find anywhere where we said we were going to build a democracy in Afghanistan. Like President Bush clearly stated that for Iraq, but that doesn't exist for Afghanistan. The original concept of Afghanistan was to destroy Al Qaeda. And then it morphed because we were kind of fighting Iraq at the same time. We had the same leaders fighting the same thing. They just kind of morphed into the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. We called it Jairoa. And it was like, all right, now we're going to stand up Jairoa, which then morphed into all right, well, to build Jairoa, we have to defeat the Afghanistan because the, or I'm sorry, defeat the Taliban because the Taliban is a threat to Jairoa. And we just kind of lost our way a little bit. And so then once, you know, if I was a senior leader and I reassessed and I was like, okay, well, if Jairoa is now the goal and we want to defeat the Taliban, the only way to do that is to go into Pakistan where they are living. And you can't fight a war with these restraints. And, you know, it just time and time through history, that's proven itself. Lincoln is a perfect example where he wanted to have a limited war because he wanted to unify the union following it. And he thought being too aggressive would create problems. But by the end, I mean, he had Sherman running down, burning cities. I mean, we were, it was like game on, like we have to do whatever it takes to win. And we just in America nowadays have kind of lost sight of that. Mm. Again, speaking to the disconnect where the very reason we're talking today you know, exists and the fact that you've highlighted this disconnect. Um, you have now been tasked uh, with multiple missions through your time in Afghanistan, but you'd be given a, a mission to do over 24, 48, 72 hours. And sometimes it would be, you know, by all estimation, kind of stupid. I mean, there got to be an easier way to get supplies out to, a, you know, a platoon that's a hundred miles away. But nope, Uncle Sam says you got to go out there and you had to take this ever-growing convoy of people because Afghan army guys have to be involved. American guys have to be involved. Then you get the mine and the threat detectors and the people that are clearing the roads. And then you have to have uh, infantry guys to cover your six and make sure that you don't get attacked while driving. And then you have to have drivers and heavy equipment operators and all these people then line up and you have to go deliver these supplies. And then you do, and it becomes late in the afternoon and you're like, well, let's just drive back today. I don't feel like camping out overnight. This is, you know, let's just try to get back to the fob make this thing a one day mission. And as you came back over this Creek, um, I just, I found the way you described that so crazy because you hit the Creek. And then the way you told how 
the Taliban was listening to the Afghan army guys on the radios and were using all of that was going on around you against you. And you didn't even know you were being listened to. Um, but share with me that Creek crossing story, because it really captures the essence of how poorly thought through some of these missions were. Yeah. So the preface, this story on previous missions, we had killed some Taliban and once we killed them, we took their walkie-talkies, which we called ICOMs. It's a little handheld walkie-talkie. And so our procedure was to have that walkie-talkie in our convoys, and we put it on scan. And when it picked up chatter, we handed it to our interpreter who interpreted it. And then the American would pass over English over our radios what the Taliban was saying. So you got to understand that. So we were coming back late one night, as you already kind of set up, and we were you got to understand also where I was at on the border of Pakistan, it was just mountains. And so there was no roads. And so everything we traveled through was a Creek bed. And right as it started getting dark, it started sprinkling and then it started raining a little bit heavier. And I was towards the front of the patrol because I was in the EOD truck and the EOD truck was like third in the order of movement for like 40 vehicles. And all of a sudden, it was like a dam broke. It's hard to even describe if you weren't there because it's not like the water rises up slowly where you react. It was like at one second, the creek bed was dry. And then it was like 10 seconds later, it was at the top of the tires. It was like a wave. And so then it's like you, you panic a little bit, but our vehicles, our uh, JLTVs and our MRAPs were able to still kind of keep moving. But one of the logistical trucks in the back had gotten stuck and they call up and say, hey, you're we're stuck. And so we kind of pull over to the side, get some security, and we're letting them sort that out. And while they're sorting that out, we pick up the chatter from the Taliban that they see that we've gotten stuck in the creek and that they're maneuvering to ambush us. So you kind of register that. And then almost simultaneously, it was like another dam broke. And then immediately the water hit the top of the grill of the, the MRAPs. And just to, you know, so you understand like the, the top of an MRAP grill is much higher than a normal car. I mean, that's almost like to the top of a normal 510 guy's head, right? So the water's deep and it's moving fast. And so now we're at a position where we can't even just run to the side of the, the small little river we're in. So we climb to the top of our trucks. We still got our headsets on. Some of the radios are going out because a lot of our radios were hooked to the truck. So now we've like transitioned to like the radios on our chest rigs. And so I've hooked the, the, I've got the inviter on my chest. So I'm still listening to whoever's still on radio, but there's like a transition there where everyone's truck radios start going out and then they have to all start going to the handhelds. We get to the top of the truck and we're like trying to decide what we want to do because we got machine guns in the trucks and we know the Taliban is maneuvering, but at the same time, you know, it's like pick your poison. Do we drown and try and stay with the trucks with the machine guns knowing there's an ambush coming or, or do we jump in and try and get out? to the side of the shore and ultimately the water kept rising and it just made the decision easy. So a couple of us, uh, myself included, we jump in, we swim to the shore, we have some rope, we start making rope bridges and and through the rope bridges, we start bringing guys over the shore. So it's like, you get over there, you set up security, then you bring people over, you know, try and hold security on the trucks as long as you can, but you start building up a base of fire support from the, from the shore. But when we were doing that, there was a soldier in the back who was imitating our TTP of going across rope bridges, an American soldier. And I don't know, the guy couldn't swim. I mean, I didn't know him personally, but when he hit the water, he panicked and he didn't clip in and he released the rope and the current was moving fast enough that he got swept down. Now, I mean, I jumped in in the beginning with that current. The current was moving fast, but like if you were a really good swimmer, you would have been able to navigate it. This guy obviously wasn't a strong swimmer and and he was panicking, hence he let go of the rope and he started washing down the river. So we get the call over the radio that we've lost a guy sweeping down river. And in the back of our patrol was the Afghan National Security Force. They actually radio that they see him, that he goes past the back of the convoy. So now it's all right. We've lost him. He's he's beyond the patrol. And so I start gathering up a group of guys to go look for him. And right as I'm doing that, you know, simultaneously, we're calling for air support. We're not, we're getting denied the air support because it's raining. 
And so it's just a bad situation. So we, I get a group of guys together and we start maneuvering down the creek bed or river bed, whatever you want to call it, to try and see if we can help save this guy. And as we're doing that, the radio call comes over that the soldier has been captured by the Taliban and the Taliban has him. So they pass that on their radios that they captured an American soldier moving in the, in the creek. So now we've, what we called it was a dust one situation where there's someone that's been captured. So we call that code word over the radio. And now the aircraft that had previously been denied was approved and an Apache of helicopters, American army helicopters showed up. I mean, within like 10 minutes, I mean, they were flying and it was a female section lead and I was listening to her and she just, I mean, she laid waste. Like we watched it like fireworks. So imagine uh, a mountains on both sides of you. Like I'm on the Creek edge of one of the sides, looking up across the Creek at the other side. And I just watched her like while she was speaking through it, like I see five guys clear to engage, engaging secondary explosion, RPG, he's dead. And, you know, just like going back and forth up to the mountain, watching her shoot these guys down. It was pretty epic. I don't, I hopefully one day I get to meet her. Um, but she, uh, she saved my life that night. All of our lives, to be quite honest with you, would have been a lot worse had they not shown up. You know, fast forward to the end of the story. So that was, we went through the night looking for this guy. I mean, we were, it was a long night. There was a couple of pop shots even after the Apaches came. And when the sun came up, somebody identified that they found the soldier and he was still in the river. And it hit his, uh, when he had washed down, the back of his camis had caught a stick. And so it looked like, because his hands were over his head, it looked like he had been tied up and it was hard to make it out. And so our assumption was because the Taliban had him that they had rigged his body with his explosives. So we, we got my EOD tech in his bomb suit and he actually had to walk across this creek. It had gone down by now, but I mean, it's still waist high. So imagine this guy like wadding through the creek in a bomb suit, which was dangerous in itself. So I positioned myself downstream in case he tripped and he needed help. I was afraid he was going to drown and he gets to, cause we couldn't use the robot either because it's the robot, it's in the middle of a creek, right? So there really wasn't a lot of good options. So he goes over there, he cuts him down, he assesses that he, there's no bombs on him, lets the body float down river. I catch the body, we pull him out, and there was actually some Air Force PJs that had flown in that took the body out of there. And in the aftermath, like when we after actioned all of this, we came to understand that the Taliban knew we were listening to them on the ICOMs, and they also knew they, they had the ability to listen to the Afghan National Security Force on their radios. And so when the body washed past the Afghan National Security Force, they radio, radioed that the soldier had washed down river. The Taliban heard that, knew we would listen to them on their channel, and then radioed that they had the soldier just to add some friction to our situation. But the irony of it is that by doing that, they actually triggered the Apaches, which killed them. So just I just one, one more story. I mean, I could tell, I mean, it was 365-day deployment. I, I've got 365 stories uh, at least. So that's one story that just kind of, to me, jumps to the top in terms of, I mean, it was just messed up, like confusing things you don't think of, you know, nature has a say and a lot of things that we probably should have been more prepared for that just in the daily grind somehow get forgotten. And, you know, we lost a guy and um, probably was preventable. Um, Yeah. So that's, that's one story. And again, we'll reference it throughout this interview, but the Jocko Willing podcast where you get into great detail about all these, I, you nail two or three different situations like that, that are just leave you scratching your head. And you said something at the beginning of this interview where you're like, the enlisteds will always rise to the occasion and they will always succeed. They will always fight. The, the American military is heroic in so many ways. They will do what needs to be done every single time from active duty to national guard to reserves. You know, we, we are in it to win it but it comes at such a tremendous price. And when the, when the orders being given, when, when, when the very strategy being employed is costing American lives and it is arguably dumb, a dumb strategy, a dumb ass mission, a dumb, didn't need to happen that way, man. I can only imagine what that felt like young officer catching a guy in the Creek and realizing that's one of your men, man, that's, Man, thank you for the sacrifices there. 
uh, you again continue to rise through the ranks. You're doing all right. You come back after that tough deployment. Um, let me see. Uh, I, what did I write down here? Command and staff from Marine Corps University going for your master's. A uh, couple different jobs within the Corps there as you're doing that. Uh, Expeditionary Warfare School, platoon commander, that kind of stuff. The thing I was taken with when I heard about your time in school is you then basically attend a school once you deploy to increase your rank. It's just kind of how it works in the military. You, you know, you do a job for a while and then if you succeed and you do a good job, you get an opportunity to educate yourself a little further and then you can rise through the ranks. And you were now going probably looking at major at this point. As everyone knows, when you get a master's degree and the thesis, whether it's for master's or doctoral, um, needs to be a contribution to the intellectual world. You chose foreign policy as the subject matter for your thesis and the people grading your thesis at command and staff college gave you your thesis back and said, make the thing shorter and said, in fact, the very topic you did it on, they didn't want to hear about. I mean, that's all true. So similar to everything else, we're fixated on the tactical level. And so everything that they want you to write about is a novel idea to improve the tactical level. And I was very capable of doing that. But again, all these stories are illustrating my confusion with the operational and strategic levels. To me, I'm identifying that there's problems there. And so, you know, whenever I write, I like to have a good question that I'm trying to solve while I'm writing it. And my question was, why do we keep failing at the operational and strategic level? And so that's what I wanted to write about. And from the very beginning, I mean, I was even publicly shamed in my conference group. They didn't do it to just me, like because my whole class knew I was writing about this. The professor said in front of everyone, like every year somebody writes about foreign diplomacy or the Goldwater Nichols Act. And everyone looked at me like, that's what you're doing. And he was just like, it's just not a novel idea. And I just I get tired of reading them. And, you know, it was a little disheartening. But at the same time, it's like, brother. That is probably the one thing that needs to be solved for us to start winning wars. So maybe you should take a look at those papers with a little bit more of a critical eye and provide quality feedback so some of these military professionals can start addressing those rather than, you know, the infantry squad needs to go from 13 to 15. And here's the reasons why. Like, that's the paper they want to read. But it's like, that's not going to make a difference in winning our wars. Like, we're winning at the tactical level. And so, yeah, and then, so whatever, I stuck with the topic. I didn't let them deter me. But even after I wrote it, it was just too long for them. And and it's crazy, too, because they assign 80 pages a night. And the paper even allows you to write, it says in the parameters, up to 80 pages. And so I wrote like 65 pages, and they just refused to read it because it was too much. And, you know, they could have at least skimmed it and been like, hey, these parts don't add value. But they couldn't even take the time to do that. It was just very, very frustrating. Um, I did pare it down. It still came out to like 45 pages. In fact, I've hung it. The paper is on my website at AuthenticAmericans.com on my messages. So I've talked about it on a couple of interviews now. So if you are interested in reading, that paper is out there and it's hung. But um, yeah, the process itself, I think, illustrated some bigger problems with our education system. Academic minds thinking about how to adjust the foreign policy aspect of this, how to adjust our big picture, the boss's strategy. And ain't nobody want to listen to that, man. That sure. just, God, that blew me away, man. That, that, uh, well, right, I think, where do we go? I think the problem is the military is focused on the tactical level, right? But then you got the president who shows up and may or may not know anything about foreign policy. And so then it's like, well, then who's the National Security Council? That's the link. Well, it's the generals and the president. Like, there is nobody else. There's no foreign policy expert that just injects themselves into this process. And so you've got these senior generals that should be doing it that are not. And you have these presidents that just don't have foreign policy experience. They're typically politicians. They're typically businessmen. Or they're typically very good speakers. But we haven't had since George Bush Sr., someone with military experience or foreign policy experience, Department of State would work like anyone with foreign policy experience. We just don't have them have with a voice in the room where they need to be. It's almost there should be a test for presidency and you have to be able to name the capitals and the like you have to name a dozen countries and their capitals (laughs) on anywhere on the planet. Just someone that knows something about another country and not how to use, you know, the camera for their advantage. So um, 
young officers do something called a leadership reaction course where it's like a complicated problem where they get evaluated on how they can solve the problem. We should have a president's reaction course where he has a foreign diplomacy problem. He's given the resources by the United States, and then we evaluate him on solving that problem. Mm. Well, we're getting there, man. We're getting there uh, with uh, your cause. And uh, that's actually where we're going to land this interview. Before we get there, I want to talk about uh, August because it's why we're even talking. Um, you'd been promoted a couple of times, even since your master's, even since a command and staff college, shining star. You finally got a sweet spot, MARSOC, Marine Special Operations Support Battalion. For all intents and purposes, you're, you have now done exactly what you said you were not going to do. You're not a WGGO. You're not a was going to get out. You kept getting back in. I imagine the family life, the parallel tract here has has enjoyed a little bit of stability while you've been in school, has enjoyed maybe, you know, a tour of duty at the schoolhouse there, supporting MARSOC, a couple kids now. Uh, you had no reason to end it, which is why I think what we're getting ready to talk about is so powerful to me. We all know what happened. We all know the evacuation foobard. I mean, it was just horrible mistake after mistake after mistake. I mean, going back to even, I think, negotiating with the Taliban on some sort of exodus timeline. But that's just one minute part of a bigger conversation that ended up costing Marines lives on the 26th of August. Share with me before we get to the release of the videos, the build up to it and your feelings, because you know, these Marines, you know, the one eight really, really well. Yeah, I, the video wasn't something that I did haphazardly. I mean, it was very, I mean, it was, it was emotional. There's no question about it, but there was a lot of rational thought to it. Bottom line is, as I was watching the fallout play out real time. I was getting more frustrated by the day. I mean, it was just another symptom of our broken foreign policy, broken promises. General officers were releasing letters that, to me, illustrated, again, that they didn't understand where the failures existed. They were addressing the tactical level, and they didn't understand senior leaders' culpability in this mess. And when the attack happened, I just got to a moment where I clearly knew there would be no accountability at the senior ranks. I knew there might be professional articles that came out over the next six to 12 months talking about the failures, but it wouldn't actually do anything. And I thought having a public conversation in a timely manner was important. And so I decided to make that video. Yeah. And again, the videos we're referring to, it's a sequence of about four different videos, if I'm not mistaken. But I remember just the, my personal connection to you and reaching out to you as I saw the first one. I think it was on Facebook and uh, you're in your BDUs. And you make that first one. And I love the phrasing here. We have a secretary of defense that testified to Congress in May that the Afghan National Security Force could withstand the Taliban advance. We have chairmen of Joint Chief, who the commandant is a member of that, who's supposed to advise on military policy. We have a Marine combatant commander. All of these people are supposed to advise. And I'm not saying we've got to be in the in Afghanistan forever, but I am saying... Did any of you throw your rank on the table and say, hey, it's a bad idea to evacuate Bagram Airfield, the strategic air barriers, before we evacuate everyone? Did anyone do that? And when you didn't think to do that, did anyone raise their hand and say, we completely messed this up? I've got battalion commander friends right now that are posting similar things, and they're saying, you know, wondering if it, all the lives were lost and, and if it was in vain, all those, all those people that we've lost over the last you know, 20 years. And what I'll say is, and from my position, potentially all those people did die in vain if we don't have senior leaders that own up and, and raise their hand and say, we did not do this well in the end. Without that, we just keep repeating the same mistakes, this amalgamation of the economic slash corporate slash political slash higher military ranks are not holding up their end of the bargain. You referenced the letter from the Commandant of the Marine Corps in that video that I saw and that we're speaking of here. Um, tell me a little bit about why that made you so mad when the Commandant released a letter. Yep. So I, I just a second ago, I referred to senior leaders focusing on the tactical failures. I mean, that was what the Commandant published a week prior to the attacks. 
he knew everyone was getting upset watching the bungled Afghan withdrawal because, I mean, there's no better example in history of just how poorly planned something was. So everyone was getting upset and the, the, the noise was being heard all the way up to his level. So he addressed it with what he calls a white letter. And he essentially just said, your sacrifices were worth it. But if you're struggling, go seek counseling. And at no point did he address the operational, strategic, foreign policy failures that could have been prevented if we had senior leaders that knew how to implement better strategy. And so when he released that letter, I was just like, this guy doesn't get it. It's not good enough. And so that's why I incorporated that in that video. Now, when that letter came out, had the attack happened yet on August 26th? Yeah, or did he that released come out? it about a week before the attack. So I was actually stewing on that letter, but I still wasn't prepared to make a video until the attack happened. And then once the attack happened, like I was still angry about that letter. I was angry about everything that was going on. I just I pulled it all together. Yeah. And of course, the attack cost 11 Marines and a Navy corpsman their life. I remember you saying online somewhere in some forum I saw, but like that you that it was personal because you knew some of those Marines and that unit was one that you had been assigned to earlier in your career. Yeah, that's all true. So, I mean, it was just probably the, the thing that ate me the most. I mean, when I was in Ramadi, I had like literally my best friend get blown up with a suicide vest and I spent just a lot of time with him and Walter Reed. And so like I watched his recovery from beginning to end. So to have another suicide vest in the same unit where I knew a lot of the people, it just, it was full circle for me. Let's dive in just a little bit quickly on the meaning of what you're doing now. Um, these videos, of course, one comes out, you get the call, take some time off, <laughs> settle down, Lieutenant Colonel, we're going to have to talk about this. We're going to have to investigate this. Another video comes out from the school bus. And this one has a little, little longer and it's got a little more grit to it. Um, you know, you're calling out some people. You're saying that, you know, people going down and you're going to bring the whole S show down with you. And I know that that's about emotion talking. I know that was the anger and the adrenaline of the uncertainty of what's getting ready to unfold before you as a fallout from these videos. But um, let's talk a little bit about school bus video. Um, why, why think that your video that these statements are going to have such a resounding impact up the chain. Why not as even Jocko, you know, says in um, leadership strategy and tactics, you know, extreme ownership, stay in, stay in your role and fight to make the change from within and saying, I'm going to continue to fight, you know, stars and bars inside the team. I don't think there's a right answer to that question. I think there's times where staying in the system and influencing change based on you having a different philosophy is a technique. I also think that there are times where people need to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to keep playing within the system if this system isn't doing what it's designed to do. And so there is no right or wrong answer. You have to assess as an individual in those situations what you think will have the greater impact. I mean, there's history there's a guy in uh, Carter administration. There was a General Singlob who was the one of the generals over Korea. And Carter was trying to pull all American troops out of Korea. It's like the same situation. And Singlob tried to convince him in closed door situations, couldn't. And then Singlob went public and said, Carter is going to get, he's going to start a war. He's going to get a bunch of people killed. Like there was a general that did exactly what I'm talking about. And we just don't have generals that can do that anymore. So if General McKenzie even had this thought, he, looking at the situation, decided that he was going to work within the system. I personally don't agree with that, but that's that's a decision that I understand the logic of it, at least. But my point is, if you decide to stay within the system and work and then you fail, you at a minimum have to accept accountability. I made the decision based on my assessment of you know, these people continue to stay within the system and make concessions at each promotion. And it's almost like they don't understand the physical, spiritual, mental tax that comes with each time they give up a little bit of what they believe to just get to the next rank, because at a certain point, then they're going to get to the place where they can make influence. Quite honestly, I think it requires a mixture of people like myself and people that want to stay within the system. But um at the bottom bottom line, I think we can agree that there's the system is not working as designed. 
in your gut at that time, second video and beyond, you didn't feel that staying in, putting on the full bird, which I'm sure you were destined to go colonel, um, you didn't feel that you would be able to satisfactorily make the change and address the issues you were talking about. So you decided to go scorched earth and just, and just let yeah, them know. I mean, hard you got to understand, like, to your point, when I made the first video, I did not plan on making any other videos. But when you're engaged in something, whether it's a battle, whether it's a chess game, whether it's a basketball game, you can't go in with just one strategy. You have to key off of what the opponent is doing. And so I went in with just the one video and it was always supposed to be that one video, but they relieved me immediately. They didn't allow an investigation to take place. And then I had multiple people to include previous bosses publicly heckling me on my social media. I had people just saying some outlandish stuff about me and my service. And I came to a decision that trying to stay within the system when that's how I was treated was not my path. And so after two days, after making that first video, when I was treated in the manner that I did, I thought, you know, I'm out here, I'm exposed, I'm being attacked. I can try and submit and just let them dictate the terms or I can be aggressive and tell them that I'm not backing down. And again, we'll flash back to the parallel track going on here. A tremendous sacrifice, which I didn't even understand the gravity of when I first saw it because I hadn't known your history, which we spoke about briefly in this interview. But to know the parallel track going on was family stability, wife, kids. You had been on a relatively stable time. Your wife had been able to engage in work and, 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 and really foresaw just, you know, another deployment and another assignment down the road. And hey, man, we're golfing. <laughs> Hey, we are, uh, you know, retired. We, we have rode the wave to its completion and you still so pissed off for you. You still decided to lay it down in a nutshell. Can you explain to me who you think bears the responsibility? You've mentioned a general's name a couple of times through previous interviews, but can you kind of just explain to me who, who's responsible for the missed direction of this Afghanistan situation? Yeah, my opinion is it's General McKenzie. Now, I do acknowledge that the president, the buck stops with him. And I also think that the secretary of defense should be held accountable. But I quite honestly, those those are almost politicians, right? So you hold a president accountable by voting and the president picks his secretary of defense based on whatever reasons he picks. Like he picked Lloyd Austin, I don't think because he would be the best secretary of defense um, you know, his whole COVID initiative, extremism initiatives. Those are the only things he's talking about when we have just systemic issues that are, are all around us. And he does not seem to be focused on winning wars. Now, what I think needs to happen is our senior military leaders need to be held accountable. And those are the people that have kind of been absolved of responsibility since World War II for whatever reason. And so if I'm focused on the military leaders, the four-star General McKenzie, who is the combatant commander, was ultimately the military leader that should have advised military policy. And so I know he went to the Secretary of Defense and the President and the National Security Council and advised on certain troop levels. And somebody made the decision, whether it was the National Security Council or the President himself, made the decision that they needed to get people out sooner. You know, they they planned the withdrawal from April to September, which is literally the peak fighting season. So, like, you know, step one. Why don't we do this when the Taliban is in the mountains of Pakistan for the winter and then there's not any interference? Like that would make sense. We chose not to do that. We chose to do the withdrawal overlaid with the probably toughest fighting season because of the historic symbolism of September 11th. Then instead, like with Trump's plan, with Bagram Air Base was the last thing that we would leave. It's hard for people to even understand the strategic importance of that base. But for whatever reason, based on the troop restraints that the president put on the plan, General McKenzie made the decision to fall back to the Kabul civilian airfields. And he wildly underestimated the Taliban's ability to advance. He left prisoners in the prison, equipment in Bagram. Taliban walked in unopposed, released prisoners. I mean, the, the Taliban that we were relying on for external security was in firefights with us days before the attack. And that isn't even really public information yet. You know, like there was we're fighting with the people that are holding our security. Like it, it just it makes your head explode when you think about just how bad this was. I mean, look at the look at the video footage of the 
or the Afghan citizens surrounding aircraft and literally holding on to the aircraft and falling off in the sky. Like, well, what are we doing? Like, we didn't have enough security to just let the airplane take off. Like, that just is a symptom of a horrible plan through and through. And so, to me, General McKenzie didn't resign when he tried to say these. this is the plan. And he was told that he was going to do something else. And so because he didn't resign, he accepts accountability. I mean, I could just keep going with the failures of this plan. I mean, thousands of Americans, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars of equipment. We a drone striked nothing but women and children in response to the preventable attack. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Like, there's just, there's not a better example anywhere. Like, if we can't agree that this guy should be held accountable, like, what does it take? Just because I don't know how it works, what should a general in that position be doing then? Does he push up to Joint Chiefs of Staff and tell guys like General Milley, who is, you know, that's that's who I see on TV. Does he push back and tell SecDef? Does he push back and tell... I would do what Singlob did. General Singlob went to the National Security Council that has Milley, the Secretary of Defense of the President, in it. And he sits there at the table with them and he tells them what the plan should be. And they say, no, you're going to execute it with this restraint. And so give me another plan. And if he doesn't think that that new plan, with because of the restraints, is executable, then he goes public and he resigns. And he explains to the American population that the plan is going to fail. And then that puts the responsibility back on the National Security Council to show why it's not going to fail. But that's not what we did because General McKenzie thought he could execute it and he failed. Powerful. I always want to know from guys like you, regardless of timeline, Trump administration decided that May would be a good timeline. It got moved back. Our EVAC got moved back for some stupid optics to September 11th. But at its core, wasn't striking a deal at all. Ridiculous. I think. If you if you want to get out of Afghanistan, there probably needs to be a deal with the Taliban, but it has to be conditional, right? We didn't we didn't arrange what happened from a position of strength. What happened was they rapidly advanced and ended up on our doorstep, and we had no choices. We lost all our power at that point, and they're even shooting at us. And then we say, "Can you stop shooting at us and just provide external security?" Okay, you let that suicide vest in. Not a big deal. We'll be out of here soon. You can keep all this gear, like. We, it couldn't have gone worse. Now, should we have struck a deal with the Taliban? Yes, but from a position of strength. Hey, Taliban, we will leave. You do this. If you do this, then we will leave. If not, then we will kill you. That's how you do that. And we just didn't do that. You said it in like 30 seconds and I've never heard it said like that. I mean, that is, that's it. I mean, that's That's bullseye. We could go on and on and on. And again, I'll make like my 10th plug for this, but you get into so many specific details of what it was like to release these videos, how the Marine Corps did the fastest court martial in history, uh, your time in the brig, all the charges you were brought up on. And the ridiculous irony is the fact that you're being punished and the things you have just spoken about and the generals above McKenzie, uh, you know, National Security Council list goes on and on and on. Nobody gets punished up there. Nobody gets punished up there for people dying. And then you take a whooping for speaking out. Um, It brings us to where do we are today? And I guess the two final questions are um, one, this did come at a tremendous personal price. And I know that's an ongoing thing, but I want you to kind of share with me sort of how it has affected your family. Well, I'm going through a divorce, so that's a pretty big impact, but it's very amicable. You know, I still love my ex-wife. We still hang out as a family unit as much as we can. Um, but it's been a challenging situation. I mean, the, the amount of pressure that was applied on this, ultimately, we were unable to reconcile. Um, so that's the impact on the family. Then, you know, the bigger question is, would you do it again? I don't know. I mean, I, you never, when you go into these things, hindsight's always twenty twenty. There's things I would have done differently, but at the end of the day, I feel like I was speaking from a place of truth and saying things that I believed in. And it's really hard to regret that. Right. So ships kind of fell where they fell. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what I did. Mm. You are doing something still to affect change and it revolves around your website. I want to know a little bit more about where you go from here now, because you're no longer a Marine. You're no longer in the Marines. 
always a Marine. I, I know that about you guys. Um, but where do you go from here? Yep. So if you want to see my political views or you want to support me, there's ways to donate. It's at authenticamericans.com. Um, there's also a pre-order of a book that I'm working on and it's got just some of my interviews. And so it's a place to support me, authenticamericans.com. A separate website is votesforvets.org. And that's a coalition of candidates in the 22 cycle that I've organized to provide support how and where I can. And, you know, the question is, where do I go from here? I don't know. You know, I'm out right now. I'm doing media. I'll probably write a book. I, I'm still very passionate about foreign policy. I still very passionate about America. And I believe in the place that I'm at now, it's probably through politics. The, the bumper sticker that I like to say is we need leaders, not politicians. I understand that people up in Congress and the executive branch are our representatives, but at the same time, they need leadership qualities to make some of the tough decisions that I'm not seeing. It seems to be a little bit more about self-preservation or sound bites than actual hard discussion, engaging the topics. And so, yeah, I, I think I'll probably throw my name in the hat for the 24 election cycle. It's too soon for me now. But uh, I do plan on getting on the campaign trail with some of my candidates. So AuthenticAmericans.com, you can see really everything that I stand for from there. Did you form a pack of some kind or did you form an organization that can help these candidates? Uh, so I said you can go on there and donate. One of them is called the Disabled Veterans Pack. So I've partnered with a pack and it's, you know, it's a super pack. It's also a federal pack. So we can we can do a lot of different creative things to help our candidates. And so, yes, I've partnered with one. Mm, right on. Uh, fascinating journey, man. And you said again uh, at the website there, I can read more from your master's thesis to your background and your story. Tell me that website again. Yeah, it's the same one. AuthenticAmericans.com. So anything Stu Scheller is linked there. And also my social media, there's been a lot of fake accounts under my name. So you go to authenticamericans.com, my real social media is all linked to the bottom. So you can see all my social pages from there. Parting words for anybody hearing this um, that we can take away and maybe know a little bit more about Stu Scheller, maybe know about what you think, or maybe know about what you recommend. Yeah, I think my parting words are a lot of people have come at me almost entrenched in the position that I can't make change. So everything that I did just means that there's one less lieutenant colonel and that the system is the way it is and nothing is going to change. And I'll be honest, I just fundamentally and philosophically disagree with that. And so I still, even today, have people getting on my social media and taunting me with the generals are still in place. You didn't do anything. And that's there's a lot of truth to that. But you have to start somewhere. I truly believe in what I'm doing. I truly believe there's been a centralization of power in the top part of our key organizations that needs fundamental change. It needs people to apply pressure. I think most Americans have a common sense view of the problems that we are plaguing a lot of our systems. And so I think with the support, if people start finding their voice, you know, looking at the candidates that I have that are running to my coalition, I truly believe we can make change. And I think the time is now. I do wonder about what the impact of going from 70 some veterans in both the House and the Senate to if we had 150 veterans, if we had 200 veterans, could you imagine if out of 400 and some veterans or 400 and some elected representatives, if 300 and some of them were veterans, what it would be like as we debate issues, as we find solutions and as we craft foreign policy? You know, I honestly think there would be less war because I think veterans that have been to war are less likely to run back to it without a lot of critical thought in really understanding foreign policy. So I think some people, when they hear that, they think, oh, great, we're going to be running the war. The truth is when you get just rich lawyers and doctors and career politicians that really plague our current Congress and, and executive branch now, they just lack the insight that's required to do things to really prevent. And even if we do get engaged, have effective strategy to end it in a manner that's appropriate. I think that's why we need more veterans. Right on, ma'am. Stu Scheller, Lieutenant Colonel Stu Scheller, always a Marine. Thank you for unpacking some of it, and thank you for sharing your story with us today. 
Thanks, Phil. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladaris. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.